open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We'll look today at Luke's own prologue or introduction to his book. We've spent the last two weeks trying to get a grasp of the book as a whole, and we've seen that it's framed by references to the kingdom of God. It's about the coming and the progress of the kingdom in a way that's designed to reassure us The kingdom really is coming. Jesus really is reigning, even though it often doesn't look like it. One of the ways we know he's reigning is by the continued spread of his rule over internal opposition, external opposition to more peoples around the world and to the end of the earth. Acts 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That is, pour him richly on us to cleanse our hearts from distraction, to free us from wandering thoughts and to focus our minds instead on the nature and reality of your church as it's described in these opening verses of Acts. Lord, help us to see the truth here and to love the truth and to live by the truth. Help me to speak boldly and powerfully in accordance as I ought to speak. And help us all to listen. Give us ears to hear your call and eyes to see your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke's opening statement here is very detailed. The sentence just keeps going as he piles clause after clause after clause on. The first three verses are all one sentence. And he covers a lot of material in this sentence. Watching the commentators try to paraphrase this sentence and how many things they leave out makes it clear just how much is in here. We're going to look at this paragraph, these two sentences, verses three, or one through five, rather, through the lens of what they tell us about the church. That is, we're not going to try to get everything that's here. We're going to try to look at what they say, particularly about the church, its people, its foundation, its identity, its methods. All of that is here. So let's look at this. The first thing we need to see is that the church is founded 
on Jesus' words and deeds. That's where Luke begins. The former account I made of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Jesus taught. He said many things, and those things, many of them are recorded in the Gospels. But he also acted. He did. He performed miracles. He healed people. He ministered to people in what we would call natural ways. God did all those things in Christ. He did and he taught. And that's what the church is founded on. It's absolutely key, of course, that Luke says it's what Jesus began to do and teach with the implication that this book is what Jesus continued to do and teach. You all have probably noticed, as I certainly did as a child reading the Bible, that what Jesus did is mostly absent from the Bible. It's in the Gospels. The epistles hardly mention it. There is very little of the life of Christ in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Luke tells us that what Jesus did and what he taught are both important. And those are present in the Gospels. The reason that Acts and the epistles don't talk about the life of Christ or quote much of the teaching of Christ word for word is because the life and teaching of Christ manifests itself in the ongoing life of the church that the epistles describe, that Acts describes, and that they provide the theological foundation for. In other words, it's not that the four Gospels are about Jesus and the other 23 books of the New Testament are about church stuff. Rather, all 27 books are about Jesus, four of them dealing specifically with the events of his life and ministry, the others dealing with how we react to that, how we carry that on, how we live in light of that. Of course, we already saw that in Luke 24. Jesus explained that the Old Testament, too, all 66 books, both the 39 and the 27, are about him. They're not all about him in the same sense that the Gospels are, recording what he did and taught during his earthly life. But they are about him in terms of who he is from eternity to eternity and what he wants us to do now in our time and how he's interacted with his people in the past. All of these are various forms of insight into the character of Christ. Luke says that already here. This is my former account was what Jesus began to do and teach. My next account is what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. This brings up an important point. Why do we care about church? If we're here just because there are some interesting folks in this congregation because we can rely on getting a great message, because we like the music, because the chairs are comfy or the building is beautiful, we've missed it. 
But the reason church is interesting and exciting is because it's what Jesus is continuing to do. And if you don't see him here, if you don't believe that Jesus is at work in our gathering, then our gathering is really not particularly great or cool or interesting. Right, if this isn't what Jesus is continuing to do and teach, why do we bother? And in fact, Paul tells us the answer is we shouldn't bother. But Jesus is continuing to do and to teach in the ongoing life of his church. And that is why Acts says it's about what Jesus continued to do and teach, and it's about what the church did. Which is also why then we're looking at just these first five verses through the lens of what they tell us about the church. The first thing they tell us about the church is that the church is founded on what Jesus began to do and teach and that the church continues as the place where Jesus continues to do and to teach. If you believe that, you'll love being at church. You'll love the people of God. You'll love to see your Savior at work and listen to what he teaches here in the church. So he began to do and teach it. It's recorded in Scripture. That was the former account Luke made. That was Scripture, the Gospel of Luke as we know it. And by saying the former account, he's obviously implying that there's a sequel, that there's volume two, that there's another account. And of course, this book of Acts is that new account. So it's recorded in Scripture, and it's recorded in two volumes, Luke and Acts. We don't have to guess what Jesus began to do and teach. We have it written down. We don't have to guess what he's continuing to do and teach. We have it written down. So what he began to do and teach until the day of his ascension, until the day when he was taken up. So Luke goes, properly speaking, through the ascension. That's where volume one ends. And we heard that in our scripture reading this morning. This volume then begins at the same place where the last one left off, at the ascension. After, the ascension was after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking. What were the 40 days? Well, there were 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And those 40 days are absolutely key. Luke is the only New Testament writer who mentions them, or who mentions them as such, as 40 days. And yet clearly in those 40 days, something happened that provoked the split between Judaism and Christianity that's recorded in Acts and in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus worshipped in the synagogue every Saturday. Jesus participated in the great feasts of Judaism. Jesus was an observant Jewish carpenter. The Gospels are completely uniform in testifying that. Of course, in the great battles between Christians and Jews down through the centuries, that's been a favorite polemical point on the Jewish side. Christianity was not invented by Jesus. You can read the Gospels and you will see that they are Jewish documents. 
your Messiah was one of us. And so he is, we can affirm that to our Jewish friends, except that what he said during the 40 days obviously turned the church away from the synagogue. Now what did he say? Well, that's not in the Gospels, nor is it in so many words in Acts. Right, the one thing that Jesus taught, well, there are two things that he taught. The first is recorded here about the power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We'll talk about that next week. The other known statement from the 40 days is, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it was that, it's that triune name that ultimately makes the difference between the synagogue and the church, between Judaism and Christianity. Jesus taught them the triune name, that God is not just Father, but also Son and Spirit. And that those 40 days then, as I said, are absolutely key for understanding how the church became what it is. It was there, it was during that time that the church learned the triune proclamation of Jesus as the Son and of course the Holy Spirit as the Spirit who are both God along with the Father. So Christ mentions the Spirit here in Acts 1 but he mentions all three persons together in Matthew 28 and that is what Jesus taught as he gave commands to the apostles whom he had chosen and spoke about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He lived on earth in his glorified resurrection body for almost six weeks, 40 days, and in that time he spoke about the kingdom. And we know, of course, that he also spoke about the Trinity. So that's the foundation. Jesus' words and deeds. That's where the church comes from. And what is the church according to what Luke describes? Well, he describes it as the kingdom of God. As we know, he talks about how this whole book is about the kingdom. The first reference to the kingdom is here in verse 3. He spoke of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God. Well, it's, you can make it a little more abstract. You can say it's the rule of God, the reign of Christ. You can think of a map on which the kingdoms of the world are marked. There are only a few nations today that still call themselves kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Jordan, and the kingdom of Great Britain. We tend to think of kingdom as a territory or a place. But the New Testament uses that word to describe dominion in general. The kingdom of God is everywhere that Jesus rules. Now, put that way, how can the kingdom come? kingdom is already here. God is omnipotent. God rules everywhere. 
Jesus rules everywhere. And so this mystery of the kingdom is the flip side of the mystery of evil. Because the kingdom as we speak of it can come. Or it can be driven back. It advances or it retreats. The mystery of evil is the question of how God can be defeated. How can God lose? How can something God doesn't want happen? That's the problem of evil. The mystery of the kingdom then is how God is overcoming evil. At the beginning, Satan engineered a coup with the connivance of Adam and Eve by which he was able to take this world out from under the dominion of God in a certain sense. Not in an absolute or total sense, but in a certain sense, Satan brought the world over into his kingdom. And in Satan's kingdom, where the world presently lies, the world is in Satan's lap. We've talked about this a lot recently. God is defeated every day. The Ten Commandments are violated. The things God doesn't want happen all the time. People do many evil and outrageous things all around us. And we participate in that. We do evil and outrageous things Two, that is the problem of evil. God is defeated. God's rule is driven back. Things are not done on earth like they're done in heaven. And that's a problem. Not only is it a problem of evil, a problem of bad things happening to people and animals, and plants, and the environment, and everything that exists groans under this curse of evil. But it's also a theological problem. Why are things done differently on earth than in heaven? Our confession says that God is as powerful on earth as he is in heaven. That God is as present on earth as he is in heaven. That God is as omnipotent, as unable to be defeated on earth as he is in heaven. And yet it's equally obvious that his will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. That he is defeated on earth all the time. So this question, this difficulty, has been processed by the theologians in terms of a distinction that we'd have a distinction, we distinguish between the omnipotent reign of God or the natural dominion on the one hand, because God is God, he rules everything, his power is omnipotent everywhere. That's one side of it, but that's distinguished from the mediatorial dominion, which is that side of the kingdom that can advance or diminish, that can grow and come or be driven back. And that is the kingdom that we pray to come. That is the kingdom that Jesus received
from the Father. As mediator, he is the one in charge of coming to earth and taking earth back from Satan's dominion, from sin's dominion, and bringing it fully back into the fold. He's the one in charge of stopping evil. So theologians call that the mediatorial kingdom. The Bible usually just refers to it as the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ. That's not his natural dominion that he has as God. That is a given dominion that he has as Messiah, the one anointed by God for the purpose of bringing earth and its inhabitants out of Satan's clutches. And so the kingdom of darkness is paired dialectically with the kingdom of light in the New Testament. Satan's kingdom is driven back by the light, or alternatively, the darkness comes forward and attempts to drive back the light. So Jesus spoke to the apostles about this reality. He described the kingdom of God to them. He explained to them that, yes, my will is not done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Father has sent me to do something about that. To solve that problem and bring everything, the cosmos, back under my Father's dominion. Which I will do, and at the end I'll deliver up the kingdom to my Father, and God will be all in all. Well, the Bible is clear about the end game of this. That Jesus will win. That his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But it's equally clear that at the moment, the kingdom is not yet here. The reign of Christ is coming. It's inaugurated, but not consummated. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. What did he tell them about the kingdom of God? Well, the book of Acts is the answer to that question. Things we see happening in this book are the coming of the kingdom of light, the driving back of the kingdom of darkness, the expanding of the rule of Christ. Jesus comes, but what is the relationship then between the church and the kingdom? If the kingdom is the reign of Christ in the sense in which it's capable of increasing or diminishing, What is the church? Well, the church is the citizens' assembly within that kingdom. The church is the population of the kingdom. The church is defined, really, in verse 2 as those who obey Jesus with spiritual power. It's symbolized there as the apostles. He, He, through the Holy Spirit, gave commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. What did the apostles do? They obeyed those commandments. That's what the church is. It's the people who receive commandments from Christ through the Spirit. Who say, Jesus says to do this, so I do it. The church is people. The kingdom is more than people. The kingdom is the totality. The church is its 
population. Christ's rule is for people, but it's also for animals, for plants, for oceans, for the earth, the planets, everything else living and non-living, organic and inorganic. Christ rules them all. The kingdom is for all of them. The church is not for all of them. So despite our Episcopalian friends having a Sunday in which they bless pets or motorcycles, yes, those things are proper subjects of the reign of Christ. But they are not proper members of the church. So confusing the kingdom of God with the church yields all kinds of problems. The most obvious one of which is that if it doesn't belong to the church, right? if you think the church and the kingdom are the same thing, then if something doesn't belong to the church, then it doesn't belong to Jesus either. And hence you get the whole Roman Catholic model with the idea that the church needs to own most of the land, the church needs to anoint the civil rulers, the church has to be in charge of this, that, and the other thing, or else Jesus is excluded from those things. That's not the New Testament model. The New Testament doesn't tell us that the church needs to colonize the moon in order for the moon to be under the reign of Christ. No, Christ rules the moon, and he rules his people. But he doesn't necessarily rule the moon through his people. The kingdom is bigger than the church. The church is the population of the kingdom. So Jesus gives us commands as people who live in his kingdom. He's our king. He tells us what to do. And he gives us his spirit who empowers us to obey. He gives commands through the Spirit. The Spirit wrote the Bible. The Spirit inspires preaching. The Spirit gives us the ability to obey. In all these senses then, Christ gives commands to His people through His Spirit. We are the people of the Kingdom of God. We're not the kings of the kingdom of God. We do reign with Christ in a certain sense. But he is our king. He rules everything. And he's bringing everything that Satan stole back from Satan. So what do we focus in on? We'll talk about this over the course of Acts. But as the population of the kingdom, what is our call? Where is our target? What's our focus in this battle between Christ and Satan for control of the cosmos. Where do we fit into that? It is our primary goal to take over the arts, human culture, civic government, or institutions, to take over the land, to protect the environment, to care for the animals. Where's our target? No, our target, our objective, is other people. That's what we'll see in the book of Acts. Where do we focus our efforts in the coming of the kingdom? We don't focus primarily 
on institutions, or on the natural world. We focus on the people. That's our role within the kingdom. We're the people of the kingdom. The way we seek to expand the kingdom, the way we seek to see the kingdom come is by making disciples. Evangelizing and discipling. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. So is it wrong to try to write Christian books or to run a Christian farm? Of course not. But the main goal is to obey Jesus. And the main way we contribute to the kingdom is by focusing on other people. I see a person in my life who needs to obey Jesus, therefore, if he's not a believer, my posture toward him is one of evangelism. If he is a believer, my posture is one of discipleship. I want to help this person obey Christ. Whether he's a believer already or not. So anyway, that's also then, how do we know when something has been taken from Satan? The bottom line is, we don't know, except with other people. We can tell when somebody has come and joined us, the Citizens Assembly of the Church. We can't tell at what point a government is Christian. At what point a field has been brought under the dominion of Jesus. At what point a play is performed on earth as it would be in heaven. We just don't know about those things. But what we do know is when another person is obeying Jesus with spiritual power. So the church is those who obey Jesus with spiritual power. The church is the citizens' assembly of the kingdom of God. We're part of the kingdom. We are not the totality of the kingdom. So who are the church's agents? Well, as I just said, it's his people. Luke mentions particularly the apostles whom Jesus chose and obviously Acts majors on the activities of the apostles and some call it the Acts of the Apostles. The apostles represent the church and found the church. They gave us what we believe. It's in their writings. They gave us when and how we meet together. We do that based on their practice. They gave us how we choose leaders for our church. That's drawn from their teaching. All those things are in the book of Acts. Without the apostles, there would be no church. Now that doesn't mean the apostles are the only agents of the church, and Luke is going to show us ordinary believers too. But without doubt, the apostles are the most important agents in getting the church going. Then the other agent of the church is the Spirit. Wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus chose the apostles, the Father promised the Spirit. All three persons of the Godhead are at work in the church. Jesus sends the apostles, the Father sends the Spirit. Through Jesus, the church proceeds by the power of Father, Son, and Spirit. And what do the apostles do in the power of the Spirit? What are the church's methods 
Well, the first method is the word of God. And the syntax here in verse 4 is so strange. Wait for the promise of the Father which you have heard from me. Why do the words of Jesus intrude right into the middle of the sentence? Some translations can't stand that. Like the NIV, for instance, just edits it out. And they totally rewrite the sentence so that it is... On one occasion, while they were meeting together, Jesus said to them, wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. But Luke doesn't put it that way. Luke, it's not because he didn't know how to write. It's because he wanted to make a point that the church lives by the very words of Jesus that interrupt, that erupt right into what we're saying and what we're trying to do. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And then suddenly we have direct discourse, which you heard from me. The church goes nowhere without the things that it heard from Jesus. Without the words of Jesus, we fail. This is the continuing task of the church, to proceed by the word, to repeat the word of Jesus, to apply the word of Jesus. His exact words. And then the other thing that's mentioned is sacraments. John baptized with water. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The church proceeds by word and by sacrament. Acts focuses mainly on baptism. Which again is taking somebody and applying the promises of God to them. God says... I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And from all your filthiness and your idols, I will cleanse you. That's what then the church does. Baptizing the nations. That's a key part of making disciples. So again, we see the emphasis, emphases of Jesus from the Great Commission repeated here. Go and make disciples baptizing and teaching them. How do you make disciples? Well, you baptize, you teach. You give them word, you give them sacrament. So that's what our call is. We obey Jesus with spiritual power as the citizens' assembly in the kingdom of God. The story of Acts is your story. Let's live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the grace to evangelize and make disciples. Help us as the citizens assembly in your kingdom, not to get out of our lane, but help us according to the place and calling you put us in to be faithful unto death. Thank you that your rule is coming, that Satan's kingdom is being driven back. Father, we pray that your kingdom would come faster, that your light would shine brighter, that you would help us to make disciples of the nations by teaching them to obey Jesus and by baptizing them. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.